0: Alright, i got good news, and I've got bad news. I'll start with the bad news. We have ransacked this place, and I cannot find Bibles. Which is a strange thing for a church. Now, there's the good news. I've ordered some. They'll be here next week. So, hopefully by next Sunday, we will have Bibles on every table. So you can actually look stuff up. Or if you don't have a Bible, you can say, Can I have a Bible? And I'll say, Yes, here you go. Right now, if you have a Bible with you, you'll want to grab it out. If you use a phone, you could pull up your little Bible app, and that would be just fine, too. I keep mine hiding inside of here. Well, I keep about 1,200 of them hiding inside of here, actually, because I'm a geek, which we covered last week. I promise to be less geeky this week with our Bible study, so let me uh, start by saying grace and peace to you all today. I hope that you had a good breakfast, or you're having a good breakfast. They made bacon for me, nice and burned, barely, barely still food actually just falls apart in your mouth. And I ate some of it before my son ate the rest of it because I put it down next to him over there. It's gone, which is fine. So let's talk about fame for a minute. How many of you have ever written poetry? Just me? Just you. Well, it's me. It's not easy to do. Writing poetry can be tough. And becoming a big-name poet is not easy. Some of these guys who are really famous and their poetry lasts and lasts, you don't know how they came up with such brilliant ideas. And even if you get to be really well-known in your own time, that is no guarantee that anyone is going to know who you were down the generations. How many people here know who Bernie Taupin is? No one. Now, 25 years ago, if I'd said his name, you all probably would have recognized Elton John's primary lyric writer. He wrote all the lyrics for Elton John's songs. But for every Elton John or John Keats or Emily Dickinson, there are a thousand Ed Smiths or Roger McCourts who no one has ever heard of. Not that I'm bitter. Once, though, there was this guy who was a songwriter and a poet, and he was pretty good at what he did. Some might even say he was inspired in his work. This guy, though, he had two things going for him that kind of helped him be known from generation to generation. First, he was the king of Israel. So he had a whole bunch of people that had to pay attention to what he said at the beginning. Second... He totally dedicated everything that he wrote to God and not to himself. You might have heard of him. I heard his name out here. His name was David. And a whole lot of what he wrote we can find in the book of Psalms. There are 150 poems and songs in Psalms, and he wrote most of them. One in particular, a very moving psalm, is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It's Psalm 139. And uh, in this psalm, he cries out, God, investigate my life. And then he goes over some of the ways that the Creator knows all of us inside and out. And in the message translation, there's a passage from this psalm that reads this way. It says, Is there any place I can go to avoid your spirit, to be out of your sight? If I climb to the sky, you're there. If I go underground, you're there. If I flew on morning's wings to the far western horizon, you would find me in a minute. You're already there waiting. And then I said to myself, oh, God even sees me in the dark. At night, I'm immersed in light. It's a fact. Darkness isn't dark to you. Night and day, darkness and light, they're all the same to you. What David is trying to say is, wherever we go, God is already there. It's already there. We are always in His sight. And nothing that we do and nowhere that we go will ever hide us from Him. Let me just have a show of hands real quick. How many people here believe that? How many people here think that no matter where you go or what you do, God is always there as a witness and a companion? I see. Lots of hands. Do you all believe that? All right, so keep your hand up. If you live as if that is true all the time. I have to put my hand down. I don't live as this is true all the time. I wish I did. But I tend to get wrapped up in my own concerns, my own ideas, and I forget. And sometimes I do things that I shouldn't do because I I think I'm alone or because I think, oh man, no one's ever going to find out. Or I just get busy. I put my head down and I plow on as if I am alone. And I, and th- I forget that there's no place I can go that the Spirit of God is not there with me. Amen. There to lean on. There to, to help. There to care. I th- I'd find that thought a lot more depressing if I thought I was the only one who uh, forgot. So I'm kind of glad you all put your hands down. <laughs> the Bible, though, is full of stories about people who have exactly the same problem that that I have. Um, We're going to go to Genesis chapter 28. I'm going to share one of those stories. In fact, just a little piece of it. This is a part of a story about a man named Jacob. Jacob was not the favorite child in his family. His father totally loved everything about Esau, Jacob's brother, Jacob's older brother. And as they were growing up, Jacob heard over and over about how Esau was such a great hunter. Esau is such a great tracker. Esau is hairy like a real man. Well, Jacob was a mama's boy. He hung around the tents. He probably didn't even need to shave until he was 20. Jacob, as you might expect, kind of got jealous of his brother. And he began trying to steal Esau's place. He tricked his brother out of his birthright, which is kind of an old school way of saying... Um, he stole his right to inherit twice as much property from his father as, as he would have. And if that weren't enough, he also managed to trick his aging and blind father into giving him this blessing that conferred the right to carry the family name and honor before God. And because he stole these things, which had rightfully belonged to his brother, Esau told him that the instant dad breathed his last, Jacob was likely to find a spear in his heart. Esau said, that's the only inheritance waiting for you, brother. So Jacob ran away. Mm -hmm. Now at this point, would you say that Jacob is at all aware of the presence of God in his life? Mm -hmm. No. If he was, he wouldn't be such a scheming weasel. Um. If you found Genesis chapter 28, I'm going to read a little bit from the New International Version today. So if you have a different translation, the words might be a little different. If you have no translation, you're going to have to trust me, but you can look it up. Genesis 28, starting at verse 10. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. Surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. So here we've got a man, Jacob, who is unrepentant. He has ignored his Creator his entire life. And even so, God opens this window for him so that he can see that no matter how small or lost he feels, he is never alone. There is no place he can go to avoid God's Spirit. Now, I wish I could tell you that this meant that he opened his eyes immediately and and Jacob then turned his life around and understood that God is always there. He, He didn't, though. Instead, Jacob actually kind of goes a little over the top right at this moment. He declares, oh, this place must be where God has His gateway to heaven. And this is where God sends everyone to earth. But it does kind of plant the seed. And if you read through the rest of the book of Genesis, you see that Jacob becomes more and more aware of the truth that God never leaves us. Never. God cannot and will not ever leave you. So if you're taking notes, write that down. If you're not taking notes, write that down. God will never leave you. Thank you, God. Stick that part in your heart and seal it away. Keep it there forever. Whether you are aware of him or not, God is with you and will watch over you wherever you go. He is in your corner. He's not watching for you to step out of line so he can whack you with a lightning bolt or an iron stick or anything like that. He is in your corner we look at another example: a couple of people who completely missed the presence of God. We're going to go all the way to the other side of the book, to the book of Acts, Acts chapter nine. Here we meet a man named Saul. Saul was a Pharisee. He was a teacher of the law of God. He knew the Hebrew scriptures inside and out. He knew everything about them. He was a student of the Rabbi Gamaliel, one of the greatest teachers in history. Saul was a zealous man. He sought to enforce the laws of God as he is in it. I need new batteries for my tongue. He, he wanted to enforce the laws of God the way that he and his group saw them. The way that they interpreted them out of the scriptures. And he knew himself to be one of God's chosen people. And he knew that he kept the laws as they were laid out in scriptures according to the traditions of his sect pretty much Saul felt himself to be the perfect example of what you needed to be in life. Of who and what God wanted men to be. And he did his best to live the way that he thought God wanted men to live. And he hated anyone who didn't do the same. Saul was a man who was aware of what he thought of as God's rules. But he wasn't a man aware of God. So where Jacob was this man devoted to his own hurts and desires, Saul was this man devoted to his own achievements. I have done this. I have followed these rules. I have shown people who God is. There was a problem though. Saul saw this growing group of people living in a way that he wasn't comfortable with. They called themselves the followers of the way. And he looked at those people and he said, The way that you're following is not the way I think you should go. So he took his position and his power and he did everything he could to try to convince those people to go back on his path rather than the one they were following. He argued with them. He had them sanctioned by the the church. He even used his authority to harass them. He had them shunned in public. Eventually he even managed to get them arrested, beaten, and in some cases even killed. But they kept growing in numbers anyway. Anyway. These followers of the way. And pretty soon he heard there were groups of them in other cities, not just in Jerusalem. And so in Acts chapter 9, we find him going out to one of these other cities to find that group of people and arrest them and drag them all back for trial. Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting, was the reply. Now get up. And go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless, because they heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus. And for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Saul's a man who just became aware of the presence of God. I've heard people say they wish that God would just get up in their face like he did for Saul. To just turn that light on and say, I am God, you need to listen to me. They want this same kind of certainty of God's presence. But anytime I put myself in Saul's shoes, or sandals, as it were, I think that that would be horrible. I think this was the most unpleasant experience of Saul's entire life. If you look back over his entire life from the end of it, there were beatings, shipwrecks, floggings. There was a time that he was stoned to death. He had a thorn in his side. He had betrayals by friends, persecution by enemies. And in the end, he's executed by Nero. But looking back over everything, given the opportunity, if he could take one thing out of his life, I bet it would be this road to Damascus. Because I bet Saul would have said, I had dedicated my life to following God And it turned out the God I was following was not who I thought. Imagine the pain felt by someone who thought his entire life was dedicated to God, discovering that that very God he thought he served was the source of everything he was persecuting. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Everything he hated turned out to be the God that he loved. He failed to notice the presence of God until God had to step in and make him see by striking him blind. Well, he could see. Saul was living in the dark, but now in the darkness, he realized that God could see him even there. I'm going to keep reading from verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord Jesus called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, because he's praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. And Ananias said, Lord, I've heard a lot of reports about this man and the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. He's come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest everyone who calls on your name. Now, Ananias is a man who's somewhat aware of the presence of God. He knew the Lord... When he was called, he answered right away, Yes, Lord. But then God told him something he had trouble with. God said, Ananias, go see Saul of Tarsus and pray for him. And Ananias said, I don't want to go there. Why not? Because he's afraid of Saul. Why is he afraid of Saul? He's afraid of Saul because he's not aware that God is there. Ananias didn't realize that even if he flew on morning's wings to the far western horizon, God would already be there waiting for him. God is there, and if you're with him, what do you have to fear? Who's scarier, Saul or the creator of the universe? Saul's got nothing on God. Why would Saul even make you nervous if you're with God? Now, whether you've ever heard this story of Saul's life or not, you know something about how it turned out. God, through Jesus Christ, sent Ananias to pray for Saul, and Saul became a man who lived his life aware of the presence of God all the time. And when we read about him from this point forward, it teaches us that he really did live as if he was aware that God was with him. Eventually, he became called Paul. He changed his name to signify... That he was truly a different person than he had been in the past. And as Paul, he became this great teacher and evangelist who suffered a lot for the name of God. But who also managed to bring untold thousands and thousands of people to an awareness of the constant presence of their creator. You can do so much. You can become so much when you're simply aware that God is there. Anyone interested in having that kind of awareness in their life? So we saw Jacob, who had no awareness of the presence of God. He became aware of Him. And we saw Saul, who'd only known the things of God, has become aware instead of God Himself. And we see Ananias, who had some awareness of the presence of God, become aware that God really is everywhere. For those of us who want to live out that kind of awareness, we've got one last example. This is from Exodus chapter 3. There was this guy named Moses. He was a man. He was born in Egypt. He was the child of Israelite slaves. And through some clever parents in the hand of God, he got taken in by the royal family of Egypt. And he was raised as the adopted son of the princess. But even from his lofty position there in royalty, he could not help his imprisoned nation. He wanted to set his people free. He didn't know what to do. He tried though. He saw an Israeli slave being beaten by his master, and he struck the man who was beating that slave and he killed him. And he buried his body in the sand, and he said, I've struck a blow for Israel and freedom. And then people found out. And it didn't matter that he was a prince, he was condemned. Even the palace couldn't shelter him from the consequences of his actions. He had murdered a man and would have paid for it with his life, but he ran away. He went into exile. He went into hiding. For 40 years he lived in exile in the desert, tending sheep. But then he became aware of the surrounding presence of God in a rather remarkable way. This is Exodus chapter 3, first six verses. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that even though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and check out this strange sight, why that bush doesn't burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And this passage is remarkable because it teaches us everything we need to know about how to be aware of the presence of God. First, notice what Moses was doing, he was doing his job. He's just watching sheep. Same thing he'd been doing every day for 40 years. Watch the sheep. Yep, there they go. Yep, here they come. Watching the sheep. He's out in the middle of the desert. He's at the edge of this large hill, which is later going to be called Horeb, the mountain of God. But at this point when he's there, it was probably called something like Jethro's Hill, or Hill Number Nine, or just a place. There was nothing special about it. It wasn't somewhere people had isolated as a special or a sacred spot. It was somewhere that people thought was a place to let sheep wander around and nibble on the shrubbery. And Moses noticed a bush nearby was on fire. It is not uncommon for fires to start in the wilderness, especially not in hot desert areas. This is probably not even a matter of major concern because the kind of desert land that he was wandering through, a bush could catch on fire, burn for an hour, burn out, and you got ashes left and nothing happens. It's not like here where we need to worry that a little fire could spark into something that chases us all out of the valley. But Moses did something a lot of people would never do. He looked closely at something that was ordinary, something that would happen all the time. He saw a bush on fire, and he looked at it closely enough to realize that even though it looked like it was on fire, it wasn't burning up. That's the first step to being aware of God's presence. Watch for the extraordinary in the ordinary. Watch for the extraordinary in the ordinary. Maybe it isn't a burning bush. Maybe it's that guy who shares his lunch with someone who's hungry. What's extraordinary in your world? Maybe there's a bird singing an enchanting melody over the sound of horns blaring down Main Street. Maybe it's being able to see through the smoke and the pollution to notice how awesome the sight of the sun going down over the western hills really is. I watched the sunset out over the vineyards by my house the other day through the cloud of smoke. (laughs) And the smoke was kind of frightening and sort of intimidating and way too close But at the same time, man, that sky was orange and pink and purple. And I just felt this sense that God had this. What did I need to worry about? There was something extraordinary in the ordinary. What's most amazing about extraordinary things is how often they're going on and no one takes notice of them. Moses looked closely at the ordinary and found something extraordinary. So the next step to being aware of the presence of God, what happened? In that extraordinary moment, God called Moses. He said, Moses. Yeah. And what did Moses do? He answered. Yeah. Sounds simple, right? Just answer when God calls. But God is calling out to all of us all the time. Yeah. Why don't we pay attention? So first we need to look for the extraordinary and the ordinary, and then when we see it, we need to listen and answer when God calls. Yeah. So far this is pretty simple stuff, Right? Next part's a little harder. Now God gives Moses a strange instruction. Mm -hmm. Take off your sandals. This is holy ground. This is not holy ground. This is a sheep pasture in the middle of the desert. God must be crazy telling me, take off my sandals, walk across the hot sand towards the flaming bush. Ananias had the same thing. Go see Saul of Tarsus. He kills people like me. Why would I go do that? God must be crazy telling me to go see him. Saul struck blind. Jesus said, go on to Damascus. Saul's like, go to Damascus. Those are the people I've been persecuting. What are they going to do to me? I can't even see. You must be crazy to tell me to put myself in their hands. Jacob, oh God, you're going to watch over me and bless me? I just stole from my own brother and my own father. I'm on the run. You must be crazy to make promises like that to a worthless thief like me. You're going to be with me. David said, oh Lord God, is there anywhere I can go to avoid your spirit? God will never leave us. Hallelujah. He is always there. And if we watch for him and listen for his call and follow even his crazy, irrational instructions, God gives us some crazy, irrational instructions from time to time, like, go talk to that guy. (laughs) If we do these things, we will find that we will learn to see God more and more until at last we really do live like we believe he is here all the time. In this place wherever this place is. And that's my prayer for myself, and that's my prayer for you, that we all learn to live that way. And with that thought, I'm going to close us in prayer this morning, if you would join with me. Abba, Father, make us aware of your presence in our lives. Lord, whether you use a burning bush or a gentle breeze or simply silenced in the midst of a storm, don't let us miss the extraordinary things that you are doing in the ordinary things of our lives. Teach us to hear your voice and answer, yes, Lord. Show us that the things you ask us to do and the ways you instruct us to live aren't crazy, but are in fact the best things we could possibly do. You showed Jacob that he was so much more than he thought he was. You showed Saul how to serve you instead of the things people said about you. You taught Ananias that there's nothing to fear when you are there and you are always there. And you taught Moses that the impossible is always possible when we follow your lead, Lord. Don't let any person here miss the lesson that you have for them in this. Show us each how following you through your Son, Jesus, will lead us to a constant, joyful awareness of your presence in our lives. We ask all this in the name and by the sacrifice of that same Jesus. Amen. Amen.